Thank you. Well, welcome back to the, uh, to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my name is Dan Eikenson. I am director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I will be presiding over session two, which is uh, a look at the economic costs of the Jones Act. A little bit of that was foreshadowed or discussed in the previous panel and during, during the Q&A, so hopefully there won't be too much repetition. Um, but I just want to give a little bit of background, and uh, then I'm going to turn it over to our distinguished panel. So in June of this year, Cato uh, published a, a paper called The Jones Act, a Burden uh, Americans Can No Longer Bear. Uh, the paper is the first uh, in a series of four papers that we're planning to publish aimed at awakening Americans to the imperative of putting an end to one of the most expensive, distorting, and protectionist schemes in U.S. history. The paper presents an overview of the Jones Act, which for nearly 100 years has restricted uh, domestic cabotage shipping uh, to ships that are U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. crewed, U.S. flagged. The paper examines the history of the Jones Act, describing how it was originally sold as a plan to ensure sufficient domestic uh, shipbuilding capacity, uh, a reliable and diverse fleet of ships, and of course a ready reserve of merchant marines to be called upon in times of war and national emergencies. In that paper, citing depletion over the years uh, in the types and number of ships built in America's languishing shipyards, a steady decline in the number of U.S. merchant marines, a persistent dependence, as Colin referred to uh, uh, the, during Q&A, on the foreign ships uh, required during national emergencies, and an absence of any compelling evidence that the law has contributed meaningfully in any way to bolstering the U.S. national security, uh, the paper concludes that the Jones Act has failed to achieve its primary purpose. But in the course of failing to fulfill those objectives, uh, the Jones Act has also burdened the U.S. economy with a variety uh, of significant costs. So in this section, we're going to talk about those costs. Over the years, some efforts have been made to quantify the effects uh, of the Jones Act, the cost of the Jones Act. Probably most famously, the, the U.S. International Trade Commission did a series of studies over the 90s and early 2000s uh, and with, uh, aiming at coming up with estimates of the cost of the Jones Act in the economy. And those costs range from $656 million per year to $9.8 billion per year, so very um, assumption-dependent. Uh, there were other papers that had been written and that had been cited in the literature found the costs to be somewhere between $1 uh, and $2 billion uh, per year. But I think none of those papers really captures the full range of costs that, uh, that the Jones Act imposes on the U.S. economy. There are a lot of unseen costs, and I put those in six baskets. Uh, there are transportation costs, infrastructure costs, environmental costs, the costs of lost wages and productivity, foregone domestic sales revenue, uh, and foregone foreign sales revenue. So I want to just examine those very briefly before turning it over to the panel. First, the law mandates that only U.S.-built ships are eligible to transport goods from one point, U.S. point to another. So, facing no foreign competition in the production of vessels for the domestic cabotage market, U.S. shipbuilders have had little uh, incentive to produce ships cost-efficiently or to price competitively. The evidence supports this all-too-predictable outcome. So the average price of a U.S.-built ship is somewhere between four and five times greater than the average price of a vessel built in a foreign shipyard, According to a, a paper last year from the uh, Congressional Research Service, recent U.S.-built coastal container ships have a price range of $190 million to $250 million, which is six to eight times greater than the cost of a coastal or feeder ship of similar size built in a foreign shipyard at a cost of about $30 million. So who would want to buy such high-priced ships? Um, how could carriers uh, make, make any money with such a hefty capital investment? Well, 
because U.S. carriers who would otherwise forego purchasing these overpriced ships are also given artificial incentives of their own to defy the economics, which come by way of the Jones Act's restrictions that cabotage services be performed only by ships that are U.S.-owned, flagged, and crewed. But these high-priced ships uh, they'll be operating, uh, the, the contract goes, uh, you'll, you'll be operating in a, in a protected market, but uh, you're going to have to hire U.S. crews, and you're going to have to abide by a variety of uh, pretty costly restrictions, which end up driving up the cost of operating ships uh, in, in the cabotage market uh, to be triple the price of foreign flagged uh, ships, their operating expenses. So with no foreign competition, U.S. carriers are free to charge exorbitant rates to recoup the excessive cost of acquiring and operating these ships. Uh, this is especially true on routes where there is limited competition from other domestic modes of transportation, such as routes serving uh, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Alaska. These exorbitant maritime rates encourage companies to take their cargo out of the water uh, and move it onto U.S. highways and rail, or to keep their cargo on U.S. highways and rail that are becoming more congested instead of moving them uh, onto the water. Uh, over the past 60 years, domestic freight tonnage uh, moved on railroads has increased by 48% uh, and, by tr on, and trucks by 217%. But if you look at the tonnage moved on coastal, uh, coastal routes, coastal shipping, and Great Lakes uh, shipping, they've declined by 44% and 43% respectively. So the artificially inflated demand for, for truck, train, and even airplane transport increases the rates of these modes of transport of, of, uh, business. Uh, for, for all businesses that move merchandise to retail outlets, uh, inventories to warehouses, and, and intermediate goods to manufacturing facilities. And those inflated movement expenses increase the cost of production for U.S. manufacturers, the prices on retail store shelves, the cost of living for U.S. families. The second set of costs is infrastructure costs. The diversion of cargo from water and land generates a variety of costly externalities, including additional wear and tear on the country's roads, uh, bridges, and rail. According to Transportation Department statistics, trucks, trucks account for an estimated 10% of the vehicle miles traveled on U.S. highways, but are responsible, those trucks are responsible for 75% of the need for highway maintenance and repair expenditures. One 80,000-pound tractor-trailer truck uh, is as taxing on pavement as 9,600 cars. The additional wear and tear adversely affects automobile owners. There are more tire blowouts, more axle brakes, traffic accidents, injuries, and fatalities. Uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates the nationwide annual cost of driving on bad roads to be about $109 billion. So the whole issue of transportation infrastructure is particularly relevant in light of President Trump's reported interest in securing from this, this upcoming Congress an infrastructure spending bill uh, that is estimated to be in the, uh, in the uh, trillion dollar range. One of the provisions of the Jones Act uh, precludes non-Jones Act vessels from carrying something called valueless cargo. Uh, that precludes foreign dredges from operating in U.S. waters. So repair, building, rebuilding, maintenance of roads, bridges, and rail are all components of U.S. infrastructure spending, but so is dredging of harbors and rivers. Uh, it is this set of costs that has the greatest implications for Americans as taxpayers. We're going to hear more about dredging uh, from Jennifer's presentation uh, shortly. Um, the third Cost category, the shift from water uh, to surface and air transportation increases environmental costs. In terms of carbon emissions, waterborne shipping is by far the cleanest way to transport goods. Emissions from waterborne shipping are three to four times less carbon intensive than they are for rail. They're about six times less carbon intensive than they are for trucks. 
and they're about 50, 15 to 45 times less carbon-intensive than air freight. And of course, when the air freight uh, being transported by airplane is flatulent cows, uh, the, uh, the emissions are even more toxic. Uh, the diversion of cargo to our roads and rail also increases the incidence of hazardous material spills, which was mentioned before, and other accidents with adverse environmental applications. Fourth, the burdens of the Jones Act include several sets of opportunity costs. So diverting cargo onto our increasingly congested highways worsens a traffic problem that already imposes a significant, a significant drag on the U.S. economy. According to a report from, from a transportation consultancy, trucks account for about 4% of highway vehicles but cause 25% of highway traffic. Uh, the Maritime Administration estimates that congestion in the nation's transportation system costs Americans $200 billion per year. Also, 4.2 billion hours in, spent in traffic and 2.9 billion gallons of fuel wasted while idling in traffic. Uh, we lose 44 billion person hours per year due to transportation delays. Fifth, the Jones Act's adverse effect on U.S. transportation costs are so significant in some cases that domestic transactions and supply chain processing of commodities uh, becomes more expensive than shipping to or from foreign locations. This was discussed a little bit in the previous uh, panel. This is especially true of energy uh, and, and agricultural products. Increasingly, we are hearing of crude oil uh, being shipped from U.S. locations to foreign refineries from which gasoline and other refined products are imported back into the United States through that circuitous supply chain because uh, because of the dearth of, uh, and, and high cost of, of Jones Act ships. We've heard of similar problems with natural gas because, as discussed before, there are reportedly no Jones Act ships capable of transporting uh, liquefied natural gas. So we've heard of North Carolina hog farmers purchasing grain from South America instead of from the American heartland. Uh, we've, we've heard of municipal and state governments purchasing road salt from South America or Europe instead of uh, uh, sourcing it domestically for the same sorts of reasons. Uh, James Coleman's going to talk uh, quite a bit about the, uh, the bottlenecks to the energy sector and the inefficient transportation solutions that the industry pursues as a result of the Jones Act. That fits right into this category. And sixth, this last category, the Jones Act is a trade barrier. You know, like all U.S. trade barriers, the Jones Act is a costly imposition on Americans. Uh, it denies foreign shipbuilders and foreign carriers access to the U.S. market, which is a catalyst for the costs already, that I've already identified. But another set of adversely affected interests are U.S. exporters. Uh, because of the U.S. government's insistence on preserving uh, the Jones Act over the years, foreign governments, especially foreign governments with uh, advanced shipbuilding capacity uh, and maritime services, uh, uh, robust maritime services uh, industries, have declined to open their markets uh, to U.S. companies. This has been part of trade negotiations. If you look at our trade negotiations, you always see an exception for maritime services, shipbuilding, things like that. So we need to do something about that. So the foreclosure of this potential sales revenue from foreigners is a, is a significant opportunity cost uh, to, the, to the U.S. economy. So our next paper, which will come out uh, in the next couple of months, uh, is called uh, Economic Shipwreck, a Full and Sobering Account of the Cost of the Jones Act. Uh, that's going to include an estimate of these various costs that I've just alluded to. Uh, of course, all of those costs aren't attributable to the Jones Act, but some portion are, uh, and we're going to, uh, uh, to present that paper next in, in a couple of months. In the meantime, I'm going to turn the floor over to the experts who can provide some of the underlying details. The bi biographies of the three panelists, uh, full biographies, are in the literature that's available out there, um, but I will just mention them in the order that they're going to speak. Ted Locke is a professor of... Uh, Economics, an economics professor at Rice University, focuses on energy markets. Uh, he's done some Jones Act work. He's written a great essay for us on the Jones Act. He's going to give an overview of the cost of the Jones Act. 
Jennifer Dana Riccardi uh, is a senior trade advisor uh, with the EU delegation to the US. She's a trade policy expert analyst. She's aware of uh, the frictions caused by the Jones Act uh, on, on, on transatlantic relations. Uh, she's going to talk quite a bit about dredging. James Coleman is a law professor at, at Southern Methodist University. He focuses a lot on energy. He's an energy expert. The Jones Act gets in the way of uh, energy logistics, and so he's got a lot to say about that. So we're going to start uh, with Ted. You're, you're welcome to start speak there or come up here, whichever you prefer. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for uh, being here and to Colin and his team for organizing uh, this uh, great event. It's my, my first time on the Cato Institute. I hope it won't be the last. I've been uh, learning a lot over the years from the work done here, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, this is going to be more of an academic 30,000 feet perspective of um, what I will call in the end a need for a rigorous cost-benefit analysis of the, of the Jones Act. Uh, I will bring back some... Uh, uh, hopefully not too bad memories from the, your econ classes in college. So I hope you indulge me. Um, now, um, let's see. Okay. There we go. Despite the importance of the act, there's little of what an economist, an academic economist at least, would call rigorous cost-benefit analysis of uh, uh, the act. The, point, the main point I want to make is that this act is at least partly redistributive. We hear a lot about the distortions that it creates, and these are certainly real. But there is a redistribution aspect that is also important. Uh, protection is, creates surplus in the form of increased profits for whatever that protected industry is. At the same time, it reduces surplus to other producers, consumers of transportation services in this case, and of course, final consumers. And of course, it creates a deadweight loss, a deadweight surplus loss, which is loss, loss in surplus that goes neither to consumers nor to the protected industry, but it results just to smaller overall benefits for the society. Of course, most foreign flag vessels operating competitive markets and are subject to lower compliance costs. Uh, since foreign and domestic vessels are near perfect substitutes, uh, foreign competition would likely result in significant reduc reduction in freight rates should the Jones Act be repealed. So we need to compare the total consumer and producer surplus in the presence of the act and the ones in, the ab in its absence uh, when competition will take over and world prices will result. Now, welfare analysis, uh, at least in the academic literature, is done through something called consumer and producer surplus uh, analysis and comparison. I'll try to explain briefly uh, what this does in the next figure. And uh, actually, let me think this figure, which I hope you can see at the, at the very back, is really uh, all I will need for uh, the comments that I want to make today. On the right, let's start with the easier. Uh, fix your favorite segment of the market, let's say product tankers. And on the right, what I have is a diagram where I have a supply and demand functions for, let's say, product tankers. This results in the world price, which is listed as PW here on the left axis. On the right, I have the domestic US market. Now notice that the resulting price, which is called PUS, is higher than PW indicating that the domestic price for that service is higher than what it would be under perfect competition 
and free markets. This price PW, given the corresponding domestic supply on the left and domestic demand, this price results in an overall quantity produced, quantity of this transportation service domestically, and, and, and uh, a corresponding surplus for consumers and producers. So in normative or welfare economics, what we define as the surplus for consumers of that service or consumer surplus is the area below the demand curve and above the price. That's area one, if you can see it, the green area one up there. What we define as producer surplus is the area below the price and above the supply curve. That's areas two and three put together. This is the status quo. Consumers at this point, consumers of this transportation service earn surplus consistent with area one. Producers earn surplus consistent with area two and three put together. Now let's open that market. If we open that market, price PW, the world price, the world rate results in the US as well. We have a change in these surpluses. Consumers now are going to earn areas one, two, and four. Producer surplus reduces from areas two and three to area three only. Who are these producers? These are the, the people who benefit from the current status quo. Okay, this is why they are so vocal against any measures that will threaten the status quo. Now, two aspects here. First, notice there is a redistribution of surplus. Area two goes from producers to consumers when the market, once the market opens. Point number two, area four is created. That's the deadweight loss. That's what the society is losing from being under the Jones Act regime. Notice area four currently is a surplus enjoyed neither by the consumers nor by the producers. It's lost to the society as a result of a smaller size uh, than optimal of this transportation sector. There's another thing to point out here, which I think speaks to one of the questions raised by the audience earlier. Notice that once the market is open, the size of the domestic fleet, let's call it, reduces from the, uh, the distance 0B to the distance 0A. So while there will be more transportation services, it will be a more efficient arrangement while the price is going to be lower, the Jones Act fleet, the theory predicts, is going to shrink. It's hard for me, indeed, to argue that this is not the case on economic theory arguments, uh, unless we're talking about the US flag becoming a flag of convenience, which is not a thing in the cards. So in order for the domestic fleet to compete, we don't just need the Jones Act uh, and, and flourish. We don't just need the Jones Act to go away. We would need the US flag to turn into a flag of convenience, which I think is unlikely. That's one point I want to make. In normative or welfare economics, we use several criteria to compare between regimes, policy regimes. Let's say the presence versus the, ab the absence of the Jones Act. We say that one criterion you might have heard before is the Pareto criterion. It says that outcome A is socially preferred to outcome B if everyone is better, better off under A than under B. I think it's clear that that's not what we're talking about here, right? It's hard again for me, based on economic 
theory arguments uh, to, uh, to argue that repealing the Jones Act will make everybody better off. That's partly because protectionist measures create certain interests and ways for people to walk around them and make profits. These profits would be lost if we go to a free market. So it's not that everybody would be better off, so we are not in the presence of a Pareto improvement. There is something else called the Calder-Hicks criterion, which says that situation A is socially preferred to situation B if those who are made better off under A can hypothetically they are made so much better off, there are so many gains for the society, that we can compensate those who become worse off and still be better off, right? I think at best we're talking about the Calder-Hicks criterion applying here. In fact, I think it does apply. I think there's good reason to believe that repealing the Jones Act will create overall benefits that more than dominate for the losses of the segment of the market that will lose. In practice, however, in order to make the legislative and other changes that need us to get there, we need to make these transfers not theoretical, but we need to make them practical. We need to make them work. So in conclusion, repealing the Jones Act will lead to an economic surplus redistribution. The precise size of these triangles so assigning numbers to these triangles implies the need for econometrically estimating the actual values of these functions. This is something that I'm in the process of doing with uh, uh, Anna Mikuska and, and uh, Ken Medlock at the Baker Institute, but this is work in progress, so I can't report on the exact numbers, but we need to have these numbers in order to uh, reach a final conclusion. Uh, domestic consumers of transportation services, as well as final uh, consumers would gain from repealing the Jones Act the profits and size of the current Jones Act fleet will likely decline. I realize this might sound controversial, uh, especially when it comes to the size of the fleet, and, and I'm happy to discuss this further. Since the Act also creates a non-negligible, in fact, rather large deadweight losses, uh, there will be overall welfare gains. But as I said, in order to make these gains a reality, we have to start thinking uh, and engaging the other side on how uh, we're going to make the, the transfers that will create the atmosphere for this, uh, this change to not be as resisted as it is today. Uh, we have little to say in our research about the national security argument. You're going to hear about this in, in other talks. Um, this is, for an economist, this is one of the hardest things to actually quantify. In order to induce the change, the winners need to in some way compensate the losers for the corresponding loss in surplus. As I said, this should be possible given that liberalization uh, would be associated with overall welfare gains. But it requires an active dialogue between the critics and the representatives from the act. In other words, we need a carrot uh, for the representatives of the act in order to in some way take them on board. Now, what this carrot would be, uh, you're going to hear more about this this afternoon, where we're discussing potential, the panel will be discussing potential uh, solutions to the existing problem. Uh, so on that note, I want to thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Hi, 
Uh, I'm Jen, and before I start, I, I need to preface my remarks with three statements. Um, first, anything that I say today should only be attributed to me and not necessarily to any other person or institution of the European Union. Second, I need to confess that I'm very clearly the weak link on this panel. Um, this is an, an econometric discussion. I'm not an economist. I don't speak academic. God forbid I'm a lawyer. I will do my best, and I ask you to bear with me. And finally, this is a really important and timely discussion. And that was brought home to me uh, earlier this week. I was having lunch with the CEO of the Triangle Research Partnership, the think tank in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Inland City. And he said, well, what are you doing the rest of this week? And I said, really, I need to work on this presentation. I'm, I'm speaking at this interesting conference at Cato on Jones Act. And he goes, oh, my God, we were just talking about Jones Act in the office the other day. Did you know that we can't just ship anything from Newport News or Wilmington? We have to truck it to Miami when we export to the Bahamas. And if a high-tech research consortium in Inland Raleigh, North Carolina, is concerned about Jones Act, that suggests to me that there are many communities around the country that are aware of this problem, are concerned about it, and are looking for leadership and someone to energize them. So I'm thrilled, then, that you're doing this work. Uh, that being said, I'm going to talk today about a very specific area of... Um, uh, yeah, affected by Jones Act and also by the Dredge Act of 1906, dredging uh, for port services. Um, in the United States, ports have to compete against each other to access dredging services. Um, that's because the process is controlled by the federal government, by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The process goes, the Army Corps of Engineers assesses a port, decides if it need, what depth it needs to be dredged to, they authorize the work, eventually Congress appropriates the dollars, and then it goes out into a public procurement process, which can only be bid on by American-owned, American-built, American-flagged, American-crewed dredging vessels. This process drags on for years. Savannah, Georgia is currently being dredged. It was first authorized in 1999. Corpus Christi, the latest port to get its, its, dredging, author, its dredging funding just this summer, was first authorized in 1990. So it goes on for decades. So states often, instead of relying on federal funding, turn to a combination of local funding, um, bids, private-public partnerships in order to, to finance the dredging that they need. And then they start complaining that they can't actually attract any bids because there's not enough American flag vessels that meet the Jones Act and Dredge Act requirements in order to service the ports. Why is there this huge demand? In, 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 a, in a nutshell, it's the Panama Canal, right? We suddenly have really massive ships that have really deep drafts. So it's not just the Panamax and the Super Panamax ships, but it's also VLCCs, very large crude carriers. It is tourist vessels. The, if, I don't know if you've been in a port recently where cruise ships pulls in, but they're absolutely massive. And to accommodate these huge, massive vessels, American ports have to dredge deeper, and they have to be wider so that you can turn the vessel and so that you have enough draft coming in. An example of Corpus Christi talking about uh, VLCCs. So the Occidental Terminal at Corpus can load 1.4 million barrels of oil onto a VLCC with a capacity of 2 million barrels at its current depth of 45 feet. The only way for that terminal to be fully utilized is if you dredge down to, to 66 feet. There's only one terminal in the entire United States that can fully load a VLCC vessel, and that's actually not in a port. It's offshore of, offshore of Louisiana. So you can't even get the ships in that we need to get in. It is estimated that using larger, deeper draft ships could save 50 to 75 cents per barrel of oil. That's a significant cost savings. In the Port of Corpus Christi, that's about $300 million annually. And so there's this local impact from federal restrictions. That's my first point. 
I wanted to give you a real world example um, of why it's so hard for communities to get appropriated and to complete their, their dredging projects. As I mentioned, the Port of Corpus Christi, which is one of the most important energy ports in the United States, was authorized to, a depth, to dredge to a depth of 54 feet by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1990. Just got funded. It went out to a public procurement process because it's the federal government. All the bid documents are publicly available. So because of this is an excerpt uh, from the public bid documents estimating the cost for just the dredging at a little over $49 million. There's some other pieces of the, the estimate, mainly dealing with turtle, turtle extruder devices, um, which I've omitted, but this is, this is the, the important number. $49 million opportunity. COE receives two bids. First bid is by Weeks Marines. It was for just over $112 million, more than double the COE estimate. One. Uh, the next bid, the apparent low, no, I was the right one, I'm sorry. The apparent low bid was by a company called Great Lakes Docks and Dredging, which was for $84 million. According to the contract officer um, on the bid, the low bid is approximately 70.48% over the COE estimate. Uh, for what it's worth, I have spoken with European dredging companies which have looked at these contract documents and have suggested that their offers would have been significantly below the COE estimate. So there is capacity out there in the world that can meet what the COE thinks we should be spending on dredging, but American ports aren't allowed to access it. Why is it so expensive? For starters, the U.S. has a really small aged fleet, and it's because of the Jones Act. So the vast majority of the U.S. dredging industry is comprised of small firms, often family-owned, that work on inland waterways. There are about 250 of these firms. They operate about 850 dredgers. That's important work, not something I'm particularly concerned about. The hopper dredger market is, is a, an issue of, of concern and interest to um, companies in the European Union. Hopper dredgers perform most of the dredging needed in the big projects, right? So this is the ports, the harbors, access channels. This is table one from a report that um, CSIS, if I'm allowed to name another think tank, did called Expanding Comp Competition, Expanding Ports Competition in U.S. Hopper Dredging. And as you can see, there are only five U.S. firms that actually have hopper dredgers. These firms only have 15 ships. There used to be more, but some of these ships were sent to the Middle East to pursue lucrative contracts there. So we have a constricting pool of, of capacity in the US. Um, what's really interesting and I think breathtaking is that four of these five firms control 98.3% of the entire dredging market in the United States. Over the period 2006 to 2015, four of these five firms received 1.2 billion out of the 1.3 billion of US tax dollars spent on dredging in the United States. Now, Jones Act companies will often tell you, and in fact, um, Great Lakes has said in their 10Ks, we make investment decisions based on the assumption of continuing Jones Act protections, and, and that's what drives investment in the industry. I would suggest to you that Jones Act is not encouraging any investment in the industry. Um, the General Accounting Office estimates that the average age of the U.S. dredging fleet is 27 years old. The newest ship built fairly recently um, is the Ellis Island. It's uh, the biggest ship in the fleet. It can handle 15,000 cubic yards of material. It can dredge to a depth of 37.3 meters. In contrast, on average, the Euro European fleet is much newer, more advanced, and bigger. Just two ships owned by one company 
um, exceeds the total capacity of the U.S. fleet. And the world recognizes how good European dredging is. We have a 66% market share globally. We, ha we own one-third of all the dredgers, all the dredging vessels, but we execute two-thirds of all the world's dredging projects. EU dredgers invest heavily. They spent $11.1 billion from 2008 to 2017 in new equipment, and they commit over 2% of turnover to R&D. They are fiercely competitive and compete all over the world. So this is my attempt at economics, but I had to dumb it down to something a lawyer could understand. That's auction theory, and this is something that I think is self-evident to many people. Auction theory explains why you can have a $49 million opportunity and attract only two bids and have to pay 70% more than you were expecting. All right, if in a sealed bid auction, in a rational market, price offers should decrease as bidders with lower costs enter the market and as more bidders participate in the auction. That seems fairly self-evident. And this is the proof. This is auction theory in practice. Once again, turning to, the, um, to CSIS, this is uh, a figure from, from the report I mentioned earlier. Uh, the authors of that report looked at um, Gulf Coast ports. They limited their study to Galveston and the mobile districts of, under the Army Corps of Engineers. And um, they realized that as auction theory predicts, both the average actual price and the average winning bid decrease significantly when more bidders participate. So you see when one bidder participates, the average cost when four or more bidders participate, the average cost is a significant difference. Imagine if more than the US fleet of five firms could compete in these auctions. GEO doing a, just one more study drawn from, from that study. Um, this shows the average costs to dredge have doubled from the period 1997 to 2005 as compared to the period 2007 to 2015. The General Accountability Office did a study of the dredging market uh, four years ago, I think it was 2014, they noticed a similar trend in costs over time. And while they did not reach um, a public conclusion as to what was driving the trend, they did identify as one possibility decreased competition. As Army Corps of Engineer, the Army Corps used to actually operate their own dredging fleet. Congress told them they couldn't do that anymore. It had to be turned over to private entities. And because the number of private dredgers available had been reduced over time, in part because of pursuing opportunities in other markets. So in the end, you know, I, I would argue to you, competition is good for U.S. communities. Every dollar you spend dredging a port is, is estimated to generate $4 in spending on other infrastructure at the port. It's really the most basic economics, right? If you have a closed market, government-sanctioned monopolies and no competition, prices will suffer, communities will suffer. Markets are distorted by a lack of funds and a lack of capacity um, when ports can't decide for themselves what size ships they want to accommodate. As a, someone on the earlier panel said, bigger ships mean more, you're shipping more things, it means more jobs. It's more, it's more longshoremen jobs lading and unlading those ships and putting them into the commerce of the United States. And it also costs the United States. Uh, Corpus Christi, once again, estimated that when their project is completed, they will be able to ship so much more um, energy products than they are currently that they'll take $50 billion annually off the US trade deficit. That's a significant number. I would propose to you that there's no national security rationale for continued restrictions on the U.S. dredging market. And the argument that restrictions are necessary to encourage investment are laughable. Liberalization will help meet the twin administration goals right now of increasing energy exports and decreasing the U.S. trade deficit. So I, I think it's a win-win argument at this time. I also want to say, though, because we're the European Union, 
not that I'm attributing my, my statements to anyone within the European Union, it's not just good for ports, it's also good for the environment and it's good for resiliency. This is a, a photo that I took last year. I was privileged to take 12 Americans on a water cycle management tour to Europe. And we learned about everything from cleaning water in urban areas to resiliency, to dredging, to dealing with dredging spoils. And one of our stops was on the coast of Rotterdam. This is called Futureland. This is a barrier island that was created entirely by European dredgers as, a rec as, a, as both a resiliency effort to preserve coastline, you know, the Netherlands being a low-lying area, but also for recreation. It was a stunning beach. It was a stunning day. And we heard about how the, you know, the engineers had planned, well, this is where the ocean currents hit, so we're going to dump sand in this place in the ocean so that ocean currents naturally carry it to replenish this barrier island. And we have this beautiful beach for recreation. We saw people kite sailing and surfing and, and uh, walking on the beach. And this is the view from the parking lot of that barrier island. This is also built in reclaimed land. This is Masklacht too. This is the second phase of the Rotterdam port built entirely on reclaimed land, entirely by European dredgers. I just wanted to throw that out there because I think many, this is an, an issue that goes beyond ports, it goes beyond shipping interests, but it really affects um, any American that lives on a coastline that's dealing with resiliency questions right now. There are technological solutions in the world that might benefit U.S. communities, including, I would argue, um, access to dredging. Thank you very much. All right, well, it's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm talking about a paper that has already been posted. You can see it uh, at my Twitter handle, at Energy Law Prof. Uh, before I get started, I'm, I'm James Coleman, and uh, because I'm one of the few people that does not in DC, that doesn't have to give a disclaimer, I'll just say I speak for everyone in Texas. So just, <laughs> just, just so you know. So uh, I, because I am from Texas, right now, as you're probably aware, the uh, biggest commodity boom that has ever happened in the history of the world is going on right now in Texas. Um, you know, we're talking about, you guys have, you've read, you've watched movies, you've read books about oil booms, but what's happening right now is an oil boom that's in an order of magnitude at least bigger than the biggest previous American oil boom, and I can go over with the, the math with you, but it's also six or seven times bigger than the biggest previous oil and gas boom in the world, which was uh, Saudi Arabia during the late 1960s. So uh, it's truly transformative. But what I'm talking about today is why many U.S. energy consumers, many Americans, have been left behind by this boom because of the Jones Act. And so what I'm talking about is why there are oil and gas consumers in Boston, in Philadelphia, in San Juan that are desperate for oil and gas and they can't get it because the Jones Act forbids shipments between U.S. ports unless you happen to have one of those few vessels that is U.S. manned, U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. flagged. So to give you a sense of the economic uh, impact, why that fundamentally changes energy transport markets, let's take a look 
at uh, how an oil and gas producer looks at the world in terms of where to send its crude. So there is, uh, because of the energy boom in the United States, increasingly fights in the energy world aren't about how to produce energy. We've become very efficient at that. We're producing it cheaper and cheaper. In fact, gas is often free at the wellhead. If you can find a market for it, you can take it. Um, but the question is, can you transport it to a market where it's needed? Because all of our transport options are full up. Our pipelines are full up, et cetera. So if you're one of those Texas producers of oil and you want to ship your oil to a market where it's needed, well, why not ship it to uh, Puerto Rico or to uh, Boston or to refineries on the East Coast? Well, here's why. It costs about 5 or $6 to ship that oil to the e U.S. East Coast but it's gonna be uh, substantially cheaper. It'll be about a dollar or two to ship that oil to Canada um, and only two or three dollars to ship that oil to Europe. So as a result, the US instead ships its oil, the, all the exports, the US has become now one of the world's premier oil exporters, which is, would have been unthinkable just a decade ago, but it ships that oil to Europe and it ships that oil to China. At the same time, same thing is true of the increased exports of natural gas. Those liquefied natural gas exports, Europe, China, Latin America, et cetera, they don't go to US ports. In the meantime, the East Coast of the United States is importing oil. Where is it importing? Well, from the places perhaps you'd imagine. Some of it maybe from Canada, but some of it, uh, some of it from the UK, but also some from Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Uh, and if you look at gas, you know, we have all this gas available for export, but Boston, uh, when it needs extra gas, it has to skirt US sanctions and import that natural gas from Russia. So those consequences, of course, are uh, perverse in economic terms. So US, uh, that means that U.S. producers have to pay more to send oil and gas to Europe and Asia than they otherwise would right, if the Jones Act uh, were reformed. And U.S. consumers have to pay more to import that oil and gas um, from farther abroad. But as mentioned, this has environmental consequences as well. For one thing, although shipping is a more efficient option than land transport, it still has significant emissions of carbon and other pollutants. And so when you double, triple, quadruple the distance those goods have to go, that means more pollution of carbon and other air pollutants. It also, of course, increases the risk when you increase the miles traveled of the kinds of spills or other things that we might worry about with shipments of oil and gas products. So uh, this is a, um, it is a big environmental uh, and economic uh, problem in U.S. energy markets. But uh, there's more. And you, as you all know, in the Jones Act context, that means, don't worry, it gets worse. So, uh, so let's, talk about, let's talk about gas transport. Now, gas, obviously, is difficult to transport. If I gave you a little bit of gas and said, bring it to somebody for me, that would be difficult. It has to be in, uh, it's both very, it's not dense, uh, so you'd have to have a huge container, and you have to have an airtight container. So how do you transport it overseas? Well, the way you do is that you liquefy it. So you take that natural gas, you cool it down most of the way to absolute zero. When you do that, it becomes a liquid, 
and it gets about, it's about one four hundredth the volume that it would be at room temperature. Then you have to, now to do that, this is why this is such a massive uh, economic boom. Each of these facilities, 10, 20, 30 billion dollars. And there are, you know, a, a dozen of these facilities in the United States in various stages of being constructed or seeking approval. So uh, you then, once you have the facility, you've liquefied it, you have to load it onto one of these spe specialized LNG carriers. These LNG carriers, each one, even if you have them manufactured where it's cheapest, costs a quarter billion dollars. Why does it cost a quarter billion dollars? Well, you have to keep that liquefied natural gas, that LNG, refrigerated as it crosses the ocean. You can see sort of the old style one here on the uh, far, on the far, my far left, your far right, um, that looked kind of like a banana split. That was because each of those spheres um, contained that liquefied natural gas. Now, the modern style LNG carrier is going to be one like this one uh, a little bit more on your right, my, uh, sorry, your left, my right, that has this just containers, basically rectangular containers. That's basically like taking your guacamole and turning it from, you know, a solid container to a loose bag, right? You guys you sort of have the sense? They're more efficient, right? They are a more efficient way of transporting liquefi uh, liquefied natural gas. Okay. So now, if you look at the next 10 years, the United States' uh, new investment in liquefied natural gas is expected to mostly happen in the United States. It's going to dominate investment over the next 10 years. That's what most people expect. So the U.S. will become one of the world's, and it really already is becoming, but it will definitely be one of the world's premier natural gas exporters. Those natural gas exports are very important because, you know, even big oil companies will say, hey, maybe... 30, 40 years down the road, oil use is going to fall off a little bit. Nobody thinks natural gas use is going to fall off because it's what's necessary to replace dirtier sources of, uh, of power that are leading to serious air pollution in global, growing global cities around the world. So natural gas, everybody expects, is just going to continue to increase. So the U.S. being a dominant exporter of that is an incredibly important economic development for our country. So the U.S. is going to be a bigger LNG exporter. Where is it shipping that LNG? Well, here you can see with our initial destinations, and you can see it's pretty much all over the world. It's to the U.K., it's to Poland, it's to China, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Brazil. One place that will never benefit from these LNG exports is the United States because there are no LNG carriers that can take that, that are built, manned, flagged, owned in the United States, and there never will be because if you, uh, earlier, uh, Manuel mentioned the GAO study, and I would encourage you to look at that, uh, Thomas Grenz, I'm looking forward to hearing from later, also has a new paper out just in the past week about why you're just not going to have LNG tankers built in the United States. The GAO report goes into some of the reasons for that, but let me suggest that the most basic one is, if you were a company exporting LNG, why would you ever finance the a, um, building one of these one of these carriers that already costs a quarter billion dollars if it's gonna cost five or eight times more, when instead you could simply ship to these destinations in Asia and in Europe. 
So in terms of my suggestions for reform, principally, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit. Uh, I'm going to disagree a little bit with Ted. So Ted, Ted noted correctly, you know, sometimes the Jones Act just says, hey, if you're an American producer, consumer, pay more to a Jones Act compliant carrier. And, you know, that seems kind of unfair, right? I think many of us would think that was unfair. But from an economist's perspective, hey, at least somebody got the money, right? That's how economists think about, about the thing. Well, at least those Jones Act suppliers are getting the money. But as he explained, there's also deadweight loss scenarios where effectively what happens is nobody gets any extra money. It's not even benefiting those Jones Act compliant shippers, and it's just harming everybody. Well, that is the example of liquefied natural gas. Because in liquefied natural gas, what, what does this mean? Does this lead to more American jobs in building shipping? Certainly not. As the GEO report explains, there's just no plausibility that that will ever happen. So instead, what it does is it simply says both U.S. producers and consumers pay more to transport uh, liquefied natural gas. And it means that American liquefied natural gas consumers are forever cut off from the benefits of the LNG export boom. So what I would suggest is that there are reforms, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of the idea Diaz this afternoon, where first there are areas where we can reform the Jones Act, like exempting LNG transport, without harming anybody in the domestic uh, shipping industry. Right? Then I would also suggest that maybe there are other areas like granting, uh, currently you get a waiver for national defense, Potentially, you could have economic hardship waivers that would apply in a greater variety of scenarios that where, um, you know, and I hope the free trade gods don't strike me down here at Cato for saying this, but you could probably pay off the necessary industries a little bit uh, in a way that would make them better off, um, but still liberalize the shipping market uh, to solve uh, some of the worst aspects of the problems created by the Jones Act. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, James, and thanks for all those presentations. Very, very diverse and, and, and excellent. I, I will say, I'll speak for myself, I wouldn't oppose uh, looking for a solution uh, like that. Um, so we're going to go to Q&A here. We've got about 20 minutes. and. Um, the rules are the same as before. Please raise your hand, uh, address your question to one of the panelists, uh, get to your question as quickly as you can, and we will start right now. So how about, since Juan, since he's right next to you, let's go there. Well, my name is William Hemsley. Um, I'm from an organization called Frere Felix C. Uh, Professor Coleman, um, pay off the necessary industries. On a structural functional basis, how would you approach the maritime labor unions on that effect? So I think, um, let's keep in mind, no payoff is necessary unless you go beyond the deadweight loss scenarios. When there's deadweight loss and it would not otherwise, nobody's benefited by this prohibition, everybody is harmed, no payoff is necessary. If there's a broader, uh, if there is a, broader reform that, for instance, says 
uh, frees up oil, right? Because undoubtedly, there are some oil shipments between U.S. ports, some occasions where the U.S. energy producers just go ahead and pay more for that shipping, and that benefits those Jones Act compliant shippers and their workers, right? I think you could have, um, frankly, I wouldn't mind subsidies to hiring, uh, you know, American, uh, American uh, shipping professionals for those in those U U.S. seamen in those areas. Uh, and I think that the cost of that would be far less than the deadweight losses uh, that are imposed by the current policy. You have a follow-up? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, for, for deck and engine, I, I would see that. But for crewmen, where would you go on that? Well, I think, um, is so, your suggesting that it would be impossible to, to subsidize crewmen? No, no. Okay, I would be entirely fine with that. I think the cost of that are minor, uh, would be sort of, you know, rounding error in terms of the whole policy. Uh, right here, guy in the yellow tie. Thank you, John King. Um, I had a clarification question, being an economist uh, by education, a budgeteer and analyst by profession. I find it strange that I'm going to ask the lawyer the question. Uh, one is, is it because the uh, waterways, the main waterways are technically owned, what, by the federal government, that you can't have, say, a local solution where the local port authorities would step in and do something about dredging capacity or dredging capability? There aren't federal restrictions. There's not a barrier to entry for additional firms to come in. So in theory, you know, the Gulf Coast could get together and say, we're going to start our own dredging company and build our own vessels under the Jones Act restrictions. I, I think the, the reality is, is that many local ports are turning to self-funding. There's been a lot of bond issue, you know, that because they don't have adequate federal funding, either they can't wait for it or they don't get enough authorized for their project that they're issuing bonds, taking tax decisions, and going to, to P3s. Um, but I don't think there's any restrictions. But it's, the, the laws exist only because Congress has spoken under the Commerce Clause, right, and filled the space. So a local solution, locally, you could not say we're going to not comply with the federal law. But you could start your own dredging firm, I suppose. But I don't know if that answered the question. Partly, because that's what I was going to okay. ask sort of a follow-up. What's to prevent say, a local port authority from getting involved in the dredging itself and building its own capability through third-party financing or something? You could. And there's, um, I honestly don't know the, the economics of doing it well enough to, to say whether or not it's viable. My gut tells me that given the fact that there's only five firms that do it, there's billions of dollars, only five firms do it, and they only have 15 ships, that the current law makes it, um, that there are barriers to entry that would make that very difficult. The types of maintenance dredging that ports do on their own tend to be the, the smaller vessels. They, they do the inland waterways, the access channels. It's basically a backhoe on a barge, you know, for, for some of this. For the really big work for taking out, you know, 40 feet of, of compacted silt, you really do need a very large, very technically advanced, very expensive vessel, a hopper dredger or a suction, suction, suction dredger. And so I think that it would be a significant burden to most um, local economies to try to launch on their own. Uh, gentleman in the purple tie on the edge, and then we'll go here. 
Mike Burnside with the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers and uh, sticking with the energy theme here. Uh, and as somebody remarked earlier, uh, Jones Act doesn't occur in a vacuum. Uh, have any of you given any thought to the uh, impending IMO 2020 low sulfur fuel regulations and how that's going to interplay with the, with this Jones Act? I mean, off the top of my head, I imagine it's only going to increase your costs, but uh, wondering if anybody's given any further thought to that. Can, can you remind us of that, that regulation you're describing? Yes. Uh, so uh, in the shipping industry now, uh, IMO, uh, the Inter International Maritime Organization, uh, lowered the fuel, uh, the sulfur levels in fuel from, uh, I believe it was previously four and a half down to 0.5% uh, by weight. Uh, so uh, that goes into effect January 1, 2020. So, and the, the big impact of that is expected to be, you know, less of the traditional uh, marine fuels, more use of uh, diesel, which is contributing to a strong uh, distillate market, and um, potentially uh, LNG actually as power, not to transport, but you're powering your shipping with LNG. Um, so let me, let me note a couple things, but first I'd like to start there is a talking point that's often used in resisting change to the Jones Act that says, oh, don't worry about these problems with, uh, that we don't have any LNG carriers. We just built two LNG-powered ships. Okay, LNG-powered ships is nothing like a LNG carrier, right? Those are, those are entirely different concepts, and it's not like the LNG engine was made in the United States either, right? So that, so that really is complete uh, red herring. Um, so let, then let's talk about what uh, this, I mean, the, these IMO regulations really are uh, expected to be sort of transformative for the shipping industry. And um, there's a couple things that you might think about them. One is they potentially reduce the environmental cost of transporting shipping so far. So if your only concern was the climate emissions from transporting fuel so far, maybe you worry 20% less about that or something. Um, but, they, uh, but they also, of course, increase the cost of developing uh, new shipping, and so that makes it, puts a premium on finding, um, on finding economic ways to transport our goods, and the easiest rationalization would be start being able to ship U.S. Uh, port to port. Just a, a footnote, these IMO standards are global. They are not Jones Act or U.S., so as a result, I think they... They take everything, you know, up in terms of costs, so they don't prejudice one industry, the foreign industry versus the Jones Act. Ed. Ed Cattell, this is for Professor Coleman. <clears throat> Once upon a time, the U.S. had U.S. flag passenger ships, and then the Alaska trade evolved. And because of the Jones Act, all of the big passenger ships had to leave from Vancouver, British Columbia, to sail to Alaska. Hmm. Well, when we laid up our last passenger ship, Seattle got into the act and said, hey, wait a minute, the Jones Act is killing us. So there is a waiver for passenger ships because we don't have any. And they now sail from Seattle to Alaska. Hmm. So the question is, New England is starred for natural gas partly because Governor Cuomo won't allow a pipeline to be built across New York. That means there's no way to get natural gas from Pennsylvania to New England. Why would not a waiver for foreign flag LNG ships work under these circumstances where there's a real need 
not just for one state or one city, but for the whole New England region to be able to ship LNG, uh, well, liquefied natural gas, from somewhere in the U.S. up to New England? I think it would work. I, I'm entirely in favor of that. I mean, one of my suggestions is just to expand that waiver authority, both you know, in two ways. One is just have a categorical waiver for certain categories where you're not going to have, you know, it's just not going to have a U.S. industry in there, so it's just deadweight loss. Um, and then the second is that only solves part of the really egregious problem because often you have a single piece of equipment that you need that you need to transport, right? And, um, you know, if you're only dealing with this one time as a company, you're not going to go lobby Congress to change this, right? If, if in the end of the day, you can't, there's nothing available to transport it on a U.S. ship, you're just going to go abroad and source that, you know, that item abroad, whatever that specialized item is. So I think there should be a category added, not like the rest of them, tied to has to be a national defense concern, but simply for economic hardship that allows uh, a waiver in those, in those circumstances. Because uh, in those categories as well, if there's not going to be a U.S. ship developed anyway, why not, uh, why not allow this uh, mutually beneficial transaction to happen? And well. Uh, wondering, this is a question for Riccardi, uh, and based on some of the uh, things that the economist mentioned, uh, he mentioned that we we are not considering uh, a flag of convenience of, of of converting the U.S. flag to a flag of convenience, and and that then he said that we need a carrot uh, to deal deal with this whole thing. Uh, but I'm wondering because uh, Europe, uh, European countries do have cabotage laws, and I remember a while back that I uh, studied the issue. And what they were doing in order to be competitive is that they created a second registry system, not necessarily a flag of convenience system, but a second registry, which was more competitive, uh, and that allowed them to compete. So I'm wondering if that is why, in the case of dredging, uh, they have been so competitive, as you mentioned. It's an excellent question, and, and I honestly don't know the answer. It's actually, I didn't realize, I'm, I'm looking at my colleague in the back, James Bradbury, who might actually know more about the cabotage laws than I do. So feel free to pitch in. I don't know that that was, that was the reason. I honestly think that the real reason they got so competitive is they're a very, they're a country below sea level, <laughs> the ones that really excel at this, and so it was out of necessity that they had to develop the technology to deal with the rising waters. And dredging was one part of that. And, is, and shipping is an incredibly important piece of uh, the economy in the uh, sort of Benelux region, which is where the four really big um, dredge, European dredging companies come from that are really considered the most competitive and, and best in the world. And, and so I think it was circumstances more than law. Um, I did want to say about waivers. I, I think that waivers are a possibility. It bothers me that it's a one-off, though. Right, that, that this is, it, it's a Band-Aid for a problem that, that goes on a long time, and it can be a convenient Band-Aid or a necessary Band-Aid in the course of Puerto Rico, but in the end, it's not gonna help Hawaii, it's not gonna help you know, Alaska, and it's not gonna help communities that are literally drowning from rising seas. And so that, that in my view, a long-term approach is the preferred approach, and one that I hope um, this work advances. If, if, <coughs> If I may ask Ted a question real quickly. Um, you, you, you're 
your slides showed what happens to the U.S. price when the Jones Act goes away and foreign supply uh, it gets into the, uh, into the market. What we've seen is uh, a decline. Uh, and, and you mentioned that uh, the domestic industry is furnishing fewer ships and less cabotage services to, to, to the market. But we've already seen a decline in U.S. ships and U.S. shipbuilding. And is that what, how do we explain that economically? Is that uh, uh, monopolists maximizing profits, or is it just the, the lack of demand because the prices are too high? And so it's a combination of the two. Uh, but I think we're dealing with very much something like a monopolist maximizing profits. Uh, so there is a deadweight loss. This is an ambiguous. So I don't actually, I don't think we disagree. Uh, maybe we disagree about the relative sizes of these things. Uh, my point was we can't, an example, to mention a little example, globalization. Uh, you'll find few economists that disagree that globalization is a positive thing. At the same time, we see a backlash against globalization. Why? Because we haven't done a great job compensating the losers from globalization. Now, the benefits are such that the gains way outweigh the losses as a planet. However, there are people who lose, and in order to go further, we have to compensate them somehow. I think the Jones Act is a small example, at least the point I was trying to make, is a small example of this principle. Uh, we can't forget that it's not just deadweight loss, but there is a distribution, and we have to come up with a carrot. James. Yeah, and I, and I also think there's a, there is an intuitive part of the argument for the Jones Act that's simply outdated. So I think that you know, people, you all remember from grade school and learning about trade routes, and it always shows, you know, spices all flowing in one direction and rum flowing in another direction, et cetera. And so we have this idea of static trade routes that are the same over time. In that world, the Jones Act works okay, right? Because it basically just says, well, there's some static trade routes between U.S. ports, and those the, a domestic shipping industry will grow up to serve that. But, and, and I, if you look at oil and gas, you can see how that is not the world that we live in anymore. It used to be the world for natural gas exports. It was all kind of long-term contracts, one big trade route, et cetera. But what the U.S. is really pioneering is, hey, we'll sell to the highest bidder today, right? And the U.S. is you know, better than most countries at exporting in that fashion. So let's go, you know, we'll go to Brazil today, we'll go to Poland tomorrow, we'll go to China the next day. And so in that world where you're not gonna ship to the same destination, you, know, you won't be necessarily shipping to them next month or next year, why would you build a tanker that's only beneficial for one particular trade route? And so I think that's one thing that has uh, contributed to the collapse of the domestic shipping industry, even with this protection in place. Uh, right there, and then we'll come to you. Hi, Benjamin Kay. Uh, so I have a question for Mr. Eikenson. So when you uh, opened up, you talked about one of the economic costs being the, the truck traffic on I-95 by your house, right? So I, I think that might be double counting in the sense that 
um, one could imagine that optimal congestion charging um, on the on the transportation network would uh, would properly internalize the externalities of the traffic, and therefore, um, it's not clear to me whether or not that that's a cost properly associated with failures of congestion pricing and or optimal externalities in ground transportation, rather than uh, a failure of the cost of of actual Jones Act. I mean, I'm not saying it's awesome. I mean, I obviously would rather have neither. I'm just saying that. Um, uh, when when you have a bad policy and it has spillovers that interact with other bad policies, it isn't clear to me how you properly attribute those costs across those multiple interacting bad policies. Definitely, it's difficult to, to disentangle the, the causes. But if you think of the freight domestic freight market as one market, and freight can be delivered by rail or ocean or river or or truck, they are competing. Uh, the modes are competing with each other. There's very, very little, hardly, I don't think there might be none, uh, very little container trade along the Atlantic. It's very little container trade in the Gulf or along the Pacific. Um, so the question is, we have the Jones Act and a bunch of other maritime laws in place and a bunch of other regulations and laws that are in place that have created this current demand for tri trucks, rail, a little bit of uh, domestic shipping. If we were to get rid of the Jones Act, maybe that wouldn't be enough to induce too many trucks off of, off of the highways. I think it would be moving in the right direction. Maybe we need to look at the whole slew of maritime laws. I mean, there have been efforts afoot to encourage use of the maritime highway uh, that have not really succeeded. Uh, there are harbor maintenance taxes. There are uh, pretty high costs uh, going bimodal, taking, things off, taking containers off of uh, trains and, uh, and trucks and putting them on ships. Uh, certainly, I could see foreign uh, vessels uh, not incurring those kinds of costs, those, those, those bimodal costs, and being good candidates to do domestic cabotage. Um, certainly, some amount of traffic is attributable to these, these restrictive uh, shipping laws. How much? It's one of the reasons that the paper that we've been working on isn't out yet. <laughs> we are trying to figure out exactly how to sort of allocate these in a reasonable way. Uh, the man in the yellow tie here, then we'll come to you. I'm William Hochberger. I um, had a career in designing ships and planning for their operations. Um, a quick note on the, the, the issue of fuel. The, um, the changeover to low sulfur by IMO edict is for international trade and I don't think would affect Jones Act or or cabotage in any other countries, although um, there'd be a lot of resistance if, if it were not done. My own comment, um, most of the discussion about the Jones Act uh, comes out sounding like we expect that if we converted from um, following the current rules to being able to buy foreign and operate uh, using foreign crews and so on, that the industry would stay roughly the same in size. It would cost less, but it wouldn't change greatly. I've been thinking about this for about 50 years, and, and um, seriously, and um, I think that the total size of the coastwise, the ocean and Gulf shipping would go up not by a small amount, but by something huge, like 10 times, 20 times. And if you think of that, the size of the market becomes so big that I really think the amount of it that would be domestic 
would still be many times larger than it is now. So if you could convince unions of that, they'd love it. If you could convince, convince present Jones Act operators of that, they'd love it. What do you think of that? Looking at me, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, um, uh, I, I think the size of the need for maritime transportation will increase, uh, given the low cost of uh, uh, flag of convenience shipping. I have a, a hard time seeing the Jones Act fleet, especially given its uncompetitive nature right now. Uh, it's possible, I don't think it's very likely. Yeah. Thank you. Comment and a question. Um, my comment simply is that a lot of what this discussion is saying, how to, oh, sorry. My comment is basically that a lot of this discussion assumes that oil or natural gas or other things pretty much are each in their own basket and is ignoring, I think, a lot of the things. But then my question comes after that, and that has to do with any idea of giving waivers or something like that. Has anybody looked at what happens when you start allocating things on that basis? What kind of a bureaucracy is involved? What the criteria have to be? How many people try to come under it that then gets gives room for all kinds of panky-pank on the sides and so on? I'm horrified that we take the Jones Act and then we're going to go one step further into the controlled economy. Just take a look at what Wilbur Ross is doing with the steel and aluminum exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hate to inform you that I believe Panky Panky is already going on in <laughs> in DC, uh, and you know there are these waivers. They're just put under this somehow national, uh, you know, national defense uh, idea. I do think um, so. Yes, I, that is undoubtedly a problem with the waiver system. I would much prefer complete carve outs of of segments uh, that so you don't have to do that. Um, but I do think it is better uh, than the alternative. I'll just make a pitch for you to stick around this afternoon. I think there's a whole panel dedicated to potential solutions, and I'd imagine that waivers are something that's discussed in that panel. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Thank you for that. W one last question here, and then we're going to uh, end the session. Thank you, Keely Iakina, Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. Uh, Ted, I really appreciate your call for a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. And Dan, in your opening comments, you cited several studies ranging from less than a billion dollars in national impact to up to $10 billion. My questions are twofold. First of all, for those of us arguing for Jones Act change, how should, how should we be cautious in the use of statistics that are out there already so that we don't overstate our case? And, and secondly, what kind of research is necessary now? What research would actually knock the ball out of the park and make our case? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, we are um, trying to understand the politics. And as, as we've undertaken this project and peeled back the onion, we're finding new layers and layers. And it seems that the effort to convince the right policymakers and to identify the right uh, uh, players and you know whose interests need to be uh, attended to um, it's it's taking it's a process so um, certainly I've seen in the research a lot of um, reference to papers uh, where there are errors 
uh, where some base number is is trying to put somebody tries to put it into real terms also, and that base number is is faulty to begin with. Uh, so I think we do need to have the right data and the right arguments. Problem is a lot of data are missing. It's really hard to find stuff. Um, I've looked at lots of freight data on 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 uh, uh, domestic transportation, and you see freight rates for years and years for rail and for trucking and for international trade. But when it comes to domestic cabotage, not available, not available, not available. So something's going on. Uh, so we need to figure out how to get our hands on, on the right data, um, try to estimate the value of the market. The, the, the domestic sh uh, freight shipping numbers seem to be pretty reasonable. Uh, it's just it's the, it's the prices charged, it's the rates charged that we're not getting a real good handle on. Um, but transportation is an intermediate good. Uh, it ripples throughout the economy when transportation costs are higher. Why, how do we benefit our economy by intentionally hamstringing ourselves? Uh, so I think making that case that households pay the ultimate price for this um, needs to happen. Um, this is how are we going to compete with the rest of the world uh, if we don't have harbors that are properly dredged, if we don't have enough ships to move specialized products uh, uh, around the country. So these costs, I think we need to come up with a you know, real clear presentation of what they are to, so that policymakers recognize that this is uh, a, really a worthy undertaking. So we're trying. I just want to throw in, since you're the Grassroots Institute, I think that is actually probably the most important work. You're, you're talking to a group of people here who understand Jones Act, who are committed to the policy, who have concerns. You have a whole state of people that are affected every day by those diffuse costs. And I, I applaud your being here. I think it's incredibly important on these issues, really with trade in general. When I go into communities around the country to talk about EU-US trade, I always start with the, the point of, we need to do a better job about talking about the diffuse benefits of trade because it's really, really easy to point to a specific harm. My, this factory closed, my uncle lost his job. It is really, really difficult to talk about diffuse benefits of trade. And so I spend about half of my time talking to people about the diffuse benefits of trade and how to talk about trade. I think it's a really, really important idea for all of us to go to our communities and at a grassroots level, talk about the specific harm caused by Jones and how, those, how it is benefiting a very discreet group of people. Because outside of this room, no one thinks about this. Just like, no, you know, it's like we get so obsessed in Washington, D.C. about the latest tweet or the last article or, God, did you see the political alert? No one else cares. And, and that's something that we have to remind ourselves, right, that you, we really have to go out and remind people of the impact on their daily lives and on the future of the economy and the future of this country. And I'll get off my soapbox. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. That's well, great. And I'd just like to say something related to that that I think is very important here in D.C., which is I actually think there may be slightly too much study of exactly what percentage of various harms are a result of the Jones Act. How much of it is the reason that Puerto Rico went bankrupt. How much of you know? How much is it the Jones Act that uh, Philadelphia's refinery went bankrupt? Those are things that are impossible to disentangle. I think that the, what's needed is more study of your potential solutions. Because I mean, here's it's like when you get water in your house and you're not sure where it's coming from. You could have an endless, endless debate about how much is the leaky roof and how much is the crumbling siding and how much is the caulking around the windows. 
But how do you actually deal with that scenario? You go by fixing those things one by one by one, and it's not gonna solve all of Puerto Rico's problems. It's not gonna solve all of the you know, Philadelphia refineries problems, et cetera, but these problems are never solved unless you start addressing them one by one. Excellent, and with that, we are going to end this session. Uh, lunch is going to be served uh, on the second floor in the uh, George Yeager Conference Center. It's up the spiral staircase in the front. Uh, there are restrooms located on the second floor as you walk to the, to the, to the conference center. Um, I know people will probably want to speak to the speakers. Maybe let them exit the auditorium, and there will be plenty of time to speak upstairs. I've taken up six minutes of your lunch. I hope it translates into an 8% reduction in calorie intake for you, too. Um, but thanks. Help me uh, thank the panel.